Hello, my name is Will, and welcome to my podcast, Nature's Wonders. Today, we are joined by Justin, who's also known as Planted Glass Boxes, on Instagram. He is a professor and a scientist working in the rainforests of Columbia right now. He will be discussing different types of evolution, and he will also be discussing conservation of plants and animals that are sometimes overlooked. This podcast is sponsored by Corals Anonymous, Aquachar, and Willow's Reef. Please sit back and enjoy. Thank you. Hi, Justin. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I recently found your page on Instagram and you have absolutely gorgeous plants and animals. And I was just wondering, um, what are the things that inspired you to make all these creations and take all these pictures? (laughs) It's kind of a longer story. I think like most people, when I was really young, I was fascinated by, you know, plants and animals and playing in the woods. And for me, I kind of locked in at an early age on kind of the more neotropical side of things. I've always wanted to go to the rainforest. When I was a young kid, we would hear how they were being cut down at you know, exponential rates. And, you know, you'd have these little, you know, couple week sections in elementary school where you talk about a topic like that. And that just resonated with me. And so when I was very young, I went to the National Aquarium in Baltimore. I was about five years old and I saw poison frogs there. And that was kind of, you know, congealed the interest in nature into something specific. And then from then, uh, for the past couple of decades, I've been coming to the rainforest as much as possible. And um, about two and a half years ago, moved down to South America full time and uh, continued my career down here. What rainforest were you going to? I started, um, well, when I was a kid, I would always beg my parents instead of going to Disney World. I was like, let's go to Costa Rica. Let's go to Panama. Let's go to, you know, any place. And they weren't really interested in that. So, you know, we started to do things like, you know, Bahamas or something was like a compromise. But the first major trip I took, um, I finally went to Costa Rica. I was about 19 and lived there for about a year. Uh, and then went to Panama. And then from that, I came back and started my master's work, which is um, in northern Peru and lived there on and off for a while. Um, but in between, I did another study abroad in Ecuador and that's where I ended up now. Um, in between then as well, I've been to a number of other countries and have been really lucky to have some invites and some opportunities to work on projects in places like, you know, the middle of nowhere in French Guiana. And, you know, currently a lot of my newer work or collaborations are in Southern Colombia in some areas that are, have been previously inaccessible to people like me. But luckily now uh, with the right connections, things are opening up again. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite rainforest or are they all just amazing? Everyone is different. I think what the favorite for you might just be a memory. It might be something that you found one place or maybe you just had, you know, a rough couple of weeks and you got one day in the rainforest. And that was just the day that kind of made everything better again. Mm-hmm. So to me, there's a forest that's close to me. It's called Mindo. It's a cloud forest. Um, it's kind of the reason I moved back here. I went there a number of times when I lived here about 16 years ago. And every chance I get, I've got a lot of projects there. There's a lot of really great people that live in that area. And so for me, that's kind of a, a place I really enjoy because it's at this point, I know, you know, individual trees. I know where individual plants are sometimes that I want to go see. And so for me, that's a special one. 
maybe it's not the most amazing or majestic place I've ever been, but for me, it's kind of close to home because that was, you know, two days hiking there is when I decided to move back down here from California and, and kind of change my career around to, to just be able to do this kind of research I wanted to do, but live down here full time. Can you explain how a rainforest works or like what a rainforest is? Because I guess a lot of people just watch movies and that's mm. what their idea of a rainforest is? I don't think in lifetimes of research I could explain how they work, but I think what I can impress upon people is that it's just the highest diversity you can imagine in just packed together. So there's so many layers and textures of not only just plants and animals and, uh, you know, everything you can imagine. I remember someone told me once, I think it was in Monteverde in Costa Rica, that Someone that studied mosses went in there and walked maybe a quarter mile and then collected enough samples for the rest of their lifetime to identify and describe those two or 300 species or something. Just the amount of diversity that you have is, is just breathtaking. And that's what makes it so interesting. You know, you can walk the same trail every single day for your life and you'll find something new every single time. And for me, wow. that's something that's always been so impressive. You know, there's people that are really love, you know, marine ecosystems or deserts. And there's amazing things in all of these areas. But for me, I've always been more interested in kind of the rainforest, the wetter side, you know, where there's tiny little plants and massive trees and, you know, a lot of really impressive things. I mean, it's breathtaking. You know, there's, I don't think there's anyone that hasn't seen a TV show of a rainforest and it's like, wow, that looks interesting. And mm. for me, that interest just locked in early and hasn't given up in a long time. Is there a specific reason about why the rainforest has such a biodiversity or is it just the, the right climate for everything to thrive? I mean, there's a lot of theories related to that. And if you ask a good ecologist, they'll have answers for days of why. I mean, there's different theories related to diversity on latitudinal gradients. There's, you know, you can have things like niche partitioning. You can have, you know, that limits competition. Then you can have more diversity contained in an area. I mean, there's just a lot of drivers that kind of, all work together that provide a diversity in microhabitats and niches and then species can go and adapt towards those directions and limit their competition and have high, high diversity. So there's a lot of different reasons why, you know, from a scientific side, you know, you could, you could think of a number of different answers, but if you, when you walk in those areas, you can also feel differences. You know, there's patches of sun, there's patches of shade, there's parts that, you know, will get a couple hours a day of really intense sun and then right, you know, a foot or two later, uh, they won't have that. So there's a lot of different kind of um, kind of micro habitats and things. And you can you imagine species, you know, adapt towards, you know, living in some of these different areas. So it's it's really amazing. I think there's you could explain in words and you can explain in theories, but the best teacher is just walking on a trail somewhere sometime, you know, taking a trip and just getting to experience how impressive it is. Mm -hmm. For a beginner, what would be a good rainforest to go to? I don't think there's a bad rainforest to go to for a beginner because you don't, you don't need to prepare much. If you understand that it may rain, it might be muddy, it might be this or that, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's not something that you need to acclimate or really prepare to. You know, you can, you can take a step into any place. I mean, keep in mind there's rainforests in the United States too. You know, the Pacific Northwest has some amazing places. For me, I'm just always talking about kind of neotropical regions. Costa Rica is always known as being a really approachable place. There's huge amounts of um, ecotourism there. There's a lot of guides. 
I think for me, bang for your buck, I don't think you can really get a better place than Ecuador. It's a small country with enormous amounts of diversity. There's a lot of interest. You know, we have, you know, the Andes where I live, and then you go <clears throat> just down a couple hours, and then you're in cloud forest. Down a little bit lower, you're lowland elevations, then you're right on the coast, and we have things like the Galapagos, which is, you know, one of the most impressive places in the world. So, you know, as far as a beginner goes, it really depends on the person. I mean, sure, there's countries where you'll need to speak Spanish or you'll need to, you know, have do a bit more planning than others. But, you know, the rainforests themselves are not this hostile place that's difficult to go into. They're, you know, if anything, you know, really welcoming and approachable. You know, there are some, you know, sometimes you're in the mud, sometimes you're in, you know, heavy rains, you know, sometimes there's, you know, freak storms that creep in or something. But, you know, if you're someone who's been outside at all, I don't think many people will have issues with it. Do you find that that's a big misconception about the rainforest just being so dangerous? I think the unknown can lead people to expect that there might be something dangerous or something that can be scary. You know, a lot of people are always asking me about diseases and biting insects and things. And like, yeah, of course there's that. But if you've ever lived in the southern U.S. or spent any time, you know, there's a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of places. And like, yes, there's some, you know, infectious diseases here that are kind of scarier. But, you know, it's also there's a lot of it's just the unknown. I think that's just something that gets people with, with that incredible diversity. You know, maybe there's things that you're not expecting and those can sometimes scare people. So I get a lot of questions like, yes, I've had bot flies. I've had dengue fever a couple of times. I've had some of these, you know, diseases and things, but I've also, you know, when I was a kid on the swim team in Amish country, I had athlete's foot and that was gross too. And you know, that's something that I think is just as bad as, you know, having some crazy stinging, biting insects. So, you know, it's, it's really the mindset that you come in with. If you're expecting things to be scary and unknown and uncomfortable, yeah, you'll probably find that. But at the same time, if you come in with just a good attitude and, you know, whatever happens, happens, like maybe I'll get stung by something, but you know, it is what it is. It goes away. Like I've been stung by about as many bullet ants as most people I know have spent a bunch of time in the jungle and it is what it is. Yeah, it hurts, but it goes away, you know, and in the end, it's always worth it. So what are you studying in the jungle right now? Uh, right now, we've got a couple of really interesting projects. Of course, you know, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've even studied that a bit. Um, I'm mainly, I'm an evolutionary biologist. So I'm really interested in just kind of asking questions and telling stories. I want to understand how species have evolved and why. And then also kind of interpret what direction they're headed. So for me, one thing I'm really interested in is understanding the speciation process a bit more. How do you have one population that eventually splits into two populations that eventually either mixes back together or could become two different species? To me, I think that's one of the fundamental questions in biology that in a couple hundred years of research, we still don't understand particularly well. And so within that, you know, I'm interested in the full speciation process, but sometimes we look at just small snapshots. You know, how are poison frogs evolving to live in you know, different types of forests or what makes, you know, two ge geographic regions of animals different from one another or what makes, you know, one morph be so successful across a really large area. So I study poison frogs a lot for that. Um, we've also been working a lot on glass frogs for many, many decades. We've understood and just assumed that transparency or better put now translucency in glass frogs has been a defense type of camouflage. So we've recently described as, as a new type of camouflage, we call it edge diffusion. It helps kind of erase the, the 
easy to find shape of a frog. And for a species like that's nocturnal and spends its days kind of sleeping there, that can help a lot. Um, we're interested in digging into that a bit more currently. We're really understanding how, you know, different um, viewing angles, different illuminations and different levels of transparency evolves and what that means, kind of understanding the economics of it. Um, I'm interested in orchids I've been working on a bit with a good collaborator of mine, Luis Paquero. He's a really amazing Ecuadorian um, botanist who works on orchid diversity. So we've been looking at kind of looking at the re uh, genetic relationships as well as geographic relationships between species of orchids within a group called Dracula, which are really impressive species. Um, and we're starting to look at, you know, working with him. We've, uh, he's been describing a lot of new species. We've described one together recently and starting to look at the evolution of things like visual signaling. So some species of orchids have really, um, really ornate leaves and tiny, tiny flowers. And for whatever reason, that combination seems to be really successful that it keeps pollinators from making hybrids. Whereas these other groups like the Dracula orchids, they look completely different. They have these enormous flowers that look completely, completely different from one another, but they make a lot of hybrids. And so we're really kind of interested in starting a project um, looking at, in that case, when in orchids, you know, it's not like frogs where frogs make the choice of who they mate with. In this case, it's the pollinators that have to make the decision and not make these errors. So I'm interested in diving into that a bit. And broadly, you know, I have great collaborations with um, friends throughout the world. Some working with some folks in Finland and the U.S. and in Canada, um, looking at various questions, uh, the evolution of behavior in social organisms. Been doing some work on social spiders with some collaborators that are really, really fantastic uh, researchers. Um, we've recently just have a paper accepted looking at like handedness in frogs. So something we never think about is whether animals, you know, are kind of left or right handed and it's kind of behaviorally driven depending on what behavior they're reacting to. So we've got a really neat paper on that in the context of mimicry even, which I'm really excited for, uh, for it to come out very soon in print. Um, and a bunch of other questions, you know, poison frogs and mimicry. How does mimicry evolve? At what ages is it important? Or when does the benefit strike for, um, is there a stronger benefit in younger or older age classes, things like that? So, you know, the benefit of living down here is I get to work with a lot of great people and I live where these things are. And so it's really great to attract people. So you and your team and all your friends, are you guys really just the people who answer the unknown questions about animals and different species and evolution and all the things you're talking about? We're some of them. There's, there's an enormous amount of really talented people throughout the world that are asking these kind of questions and do these things. You know, myself, my lab and my team, we're just, you know, a small component of that. But the thing that's amazing about science is that if something is interesting to you, you can just chase it. So if you're curious about something and if you have, you know, the money that you need to do it, or if you have the access to the species, you can really just pursue whatever's interesting to you. And that's, you know, one of the things that makes worth so many years of schooling, graduate school and everything is, you know, I really kind of dictate what my research agenda is, you know, on the month to month, the year to year basis. And, you know, we've we've been really lucky to, you know, ask a lot of interesting questions. And I'm, I'm really excited at the direction that some things are taking in the future. I think there's some new projects that we're finishing up right now that'll have some pretty big impacts. And, you know, for us, it's just it's fun. So it's a lot of work, but it's also, you know, you can be as curious as you want and then really investigate what you're interested in. Like I said, we were, some of my colleagues and I back in December heard about coronavirus and started freaking out. And I was particularly a little concerned. 
And we were, as far as I know, maybe the first team in Latin America to publish on coronavirus. So what do I know about viruses? But I know I understand evolution, and I worked with a bunch of great biochemists and great geneticists. And, you know, we were able to take publicly available data and contribute to, you know, something we thought was an important contribution in understanding the evolution of a virus that ended up kind of dominating our lives for the past year. So science is, it's a great field. It's a hard one, but, you know, you can move down to another country and set up shop and do what you want to do if you've got the strong foundation and understand theory. Yeah. So uh, what's your method when you first have a question? How do you go about answering it? Really, the first thing is understanding what is your question, really laying it out. And then understand, like, the first thing is you usually have an observation. And this is what I would tell every intro bio student. You know, you start with an observation that you just seems strange to you. So, you know, the example of these glass frogs, for example, was something that everyone just assumed this. And, you know, oh, they're, they're transparent because it must, you know, let more light through and it's just harder for predators to see them or something. And to us, it's, you know, you look at some of these animals and they're strikingly different. Some of them are really transparent or translucent. They let a lot of light pass through them and other ones aren't. And so really it's, you know, you have to ask the simplest question is why, they, you know, this likely serves some kind of benefit. And so then you have to kind of get around, okay, well, then how can I test it? And in that case, we applied a bunch of different techniques. We used um, multispectral photo uh, photography. So these cameras that can highly accurately record color and things. And then to that, we applied visual models of different species as how they would interpret those frog in different conditions. And then we just, you know, you have to come up with statistical approaches then to address these questions. Like, what is the benefit? Where do we see the benefit? And what likely could that do? Then to that, we tested those hypotheses using predation experiments, which couldn't have been simpler. We made jelly frogs, like gelatin frogs that we put out in the nature and see, you know, do some get attacked more than others and try to, you know, now we're really digging into that more to understand more. So, you know, it starts with everything that, that any five or six year old kid can do. You, you look at something and then you get curious by it. And then the curiosity, you try to think of what, what could be the explanation for that. And many times we're wrong. I, my entire PhD thesis was testing something that I thought was obvious, but we just needed to do it. And everything came out the opposite, pretty much. And sometimes that's, the, that's when you learn the most. Something may seem particularly obvious and we assume something, but when you dig into it, it's, it's not that. It's something much more complex. But that's, you know, it's how you advance. Mm -hmm. So before you got on this podcast, you were talking about the conservation of frogs. Could you dive a little deeper into that? Sure. I think the one thing that, you know, if people ask me what's something, you know, that kind of ties, you know, so I think the reason that we're talking is because I make these terrariums filled with plants and stuff. And the reason I do that is because the thing I really love is to be in nature and be in these forests. And of course, you can't always do that. And so I kind of made this band-aid for how to kind of reconnect me with nature. And the band-aid was just having these big containers filled with plants so then when i wake up in the morning i can go look at plants and kind of you know poke around see what's changing drink some coffee and then you know go to working on a computer all day because unfortunately that's what many of us you know biologists and scientists do is you know you maybe study something that's really amazing and fantastic but you don't see that every day you know you really are just on the computer all day 
Um, and so for me, that led to a different culture of people who, you know, have these plants or sometimes maybe animals or whatever in captivity. And one thing for me is it's really, I think it's really essential to remember that these things come from nature. And in nature, and a lot of times, there's a lot of, there's problem, you know, there's a lot of conservation concerns. Uh, for example, these poison frogs that I study, there's a lot of smuggling. There's a lot of people who keep them in boxes and they want them no matter what, whether they're legal, whether they're ethical, and they just will buy them or their offspring no matter what. And that leads to issues in wild populations. And so when we were speaking briefly before recording, the one thing I just wanted to try to encourage people is to to try to reconnect, you know, a bit with nature. You know, Takashi Mano, the famous aquarist, you know, wanted to do that with these highly stylized aquaria. And, you know, while I'm nowhere near as important in these kind of, you know, hobbyist things, the one thing I try to do is reconnect people to put things in context. Yes, maybe you know that plant or that animal in your, you know, your house, but this is where it lives. This is how this plant grows. This is kind of where you find it. And with that, to me, one of the most important things is just reconnecting people, but then also, you know, linking that need for conservation. There's a lot of habitats that are heavily degraded or that are missing or just so fragmented that there's very tiny pockets left. And I think a lot of people really appreciate these plants, animals, you know, whatever they're interested in, but they kind of forget that they they don't just occur in kind of sterile boxes or, you know, in, our, in people's houses that they incur in nature. And, and in nature, in many cases, they, you know, they're, they're threatened or they have some kind of risk to them, maybe driven by hobbies, maybe driven by just simple, you know, something that you find everywhere, just habitat loss or fragmentation. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the one thing I really wanted to try to impress is, you know, especially, you know, as we're so isolated um, during the pandemic and just kind of in general, I think it's just so important to remember all the places that are still out there that do need conserved. And when you're thinking about, you know, using your, your dollars, your, you know, your time investment and whatever to remember that, you know, it's really important to spread that out over, you know, the selfish things for us to get to see what you like every day, but then also remember that there's these habitats in these regions, these conservation groups, these, you know, protected lands that can also benefit from the same interests that you have. So making sure we kind of, you know, return the favor and give back, you know, part of what we get of the pleasure of having these things is remembering that, you know, we really should be giving back, you know, as much or more as we're getting from them. Yeah. So what, what do you think some steps that people could take to help the conservation effort? There's a lot of avenues. You know, I don't want to necessarily say that this is the only path. One thing that um, I feel strongly about is that, you know, there's a lot of biocommerce in these species and making sure that you're making ethical choices. So you're buying from places that are sustainably raising or harvesting or, you know, reproducing these things and then selling them and making sure that those are the same kind of organizations that you want to support. So just thinking of the, the things that are in your house, where they come from, Originally, even, you know, whether that species even has ever been exported legally. Um, we recently published on this in March, some of the ethical concerns for that. And there's a lot of scientists that are frankly very much against people having plants or animals, you know, particularly wild plants or animals or, you know, exotic species in their houses. And, you know, that's not an angle that I'm going to fight because for me, you know, 
for me, the plants are very important. You know, it does keep me connected and I enjoy them. But, uh, you know, I think it's very important to think where your money's going and to remember that, you know, these things come from nature and making sure that the original stock was legally and ethically collected. You know, there's in poison frogs and in miniature orchids, you know, there's there's some hangups. Those are the two examples we use in this paper. There's a lot of things exported without names. There's a lot of, you know, animals that have been exported that, you know, seems like it's not particularly above board. So do your work. And remember, these things are expensive in many cases. You know, even down here, I buy all my plants and everything. So, you know, in in Europe, in the U.S., in Asia, these things are very expensive. And think where your hundreds to thousands of dollars is going, you know? Is this a group that does, you know, conservation work, that does research, that does education? So, for example, here in Ecuador, we have Wikiri in Central Hombatu. Central Hombatu is kind of the umbrella under which Wikiri is their biocommerce agency. They're kind of, um, their angle that raises funds. So they do get research grants and things, but they also bring in money from biocommerce, selling, you know, frogs and things that they reproduce. But they also go on and they fund an entire research laboratory. They have a large museum and they've just built basically a small private zoo as well to do outreach and education. So there's a lot of agencies like that that are very important. And that's kind of you know, an extreme one that does have biocommerce, but has a lot of other angles. And we have Tesoros de Colombia, which is another agency that funds um, the Bioparque, which is a private zoo. They do a lot of work trying to mitigate um, illegal smuggling and uh, people purchasing the descendants of illegally smuggled animals. And, you know, there are people that have conservation hearts and do a lot of that. And then there's, you know, other ends too, like understory enterprises. These are just examples in poison frogs. There's many, many other avenues, um, which have huge private reserves, really don't talk about them. If they find something that's been new, they protect the land first. They have people maintain and protect it. And they really do the right thing, but do it quietly. So just a few examples like that. There's all of the large conservation groups, but right now I think another thing is just looking at small reserves. Maybe find a, a plant or an animal that resonates with you, find where it comes from, and see if there's a reserve nearby. Here in Ecuador, there's a lot of very important and smaller reserves that can do an enormous amount with not that much money. You know, a couple thousand dollars for them can keep, you know, park guards employed for, you know, years. Um, keep the trails maintained and like keep the organization afloat. And there's a lot of really, really great places. Like one reserve, for example, is Manduriaku Reserve. It's uh, Finca Dracula is another one. Uh, sorry, not Finca Dracula. That's the Reserva um, Dracula. There's a bunch of like smaller um, reserves that are just doing amazing conservation work and they're protecting a lot of endemic species. And those are you know things that really should be supported. Maybe you got a couple hundred extra bucks on your stimulus check that you don't need toss it to one of those guys and they'll just see how far they can make that money go. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about captive bred animals? So I personally don't have any issue whatsoever with them. I think the one thing, like I said, that maybe taking a bit a step further than many people do is I think it's just important to know where they came from. Were these animals legally collected, exported and, you know, bred? There's a lot of, you know, we define this in the paper too. What does gray market mean? Because there's a lot of things that are described in hobbies and I, I think I'm a bit further removed from most hobbies now than, you know, I was maybe 20 years ago. But, um, you know, really understanding where these plants and animals come from, if they were legally and sustainably harvested and then reproduced and bred, I personally don't have any issue. I think it's really important to, 
like I said, to kind of connect the circle again, if you get a lot of joy and pleasure out of those things, maybe, you know, if you, if you're successful in raising and breeding them, or, you know, if your plants are growing and you're propagating them, remember, you know, to give back some of that or all of it, you know, these are people, these hobbies are expensive, you know, and that's, it's a luxury to be able to have some of these things. So my encouragement would just be to try to, you know, use some of those things and generate funds and give it back to conservation, give it, you know, help fund, you know, research or education or something like that. Again, I think the main thing is just to remember and kind of maintain higher ethical standards with things. And, you know, that's, it's difficult and it requires more transparency and it requires some extra research. You know, there's been a lot of talk of recently smuggled lineages of things. And to me, that bothers me because there's so many species that are legally, sustainably, and ethically available now. There's a number of agencies that are trying to do the right thing, and yet they're competing still against, you know, recent smuggled animals or the descendants of them. So, again, I, I think I certainly have no issue with them. I think there's just a few things to keep in context, you know, to try to maintain high standards. And the high standards of how you maintain your plant for animals, too. You know, I don't think maybe everyone needs a huge room filled with tiny tanks. Maybe, you know, one thing I've always tried to push quietly is, you know, just build a big terrarium, build big things and enjoy, you know, what you have. You know, try to establish those microhabitats, you know, in a larger terrarium or try to just kind of push the culture forward. You know, the techniques and the technology that's available now is infinitely better than when I was a kid and started. And I think it's just something that, you know, we can keep pushing. We can improve things, you know, maybe have less, you know, plant mortality. You know, and I don't know how many Lepanthus caludictian, for example, a little tiny orchid with these little tessellated pattern leaves. I don't know how many of those die every year because people have a really hard time growing them. It's a very common plant and they're, you know, tissue cultured by the hundreds. But it took me a long time to figure out how to grow them right because they, what they want is different than what I thought they wanted. And so, you know, try to dive back into the old school mentality, too, where maybe not everyone's an expert. Maybe we all can learn from each other and we can all just kind of communicate and share tips and try to be a little bit more open with things. You know, when I was a kid into these hobbies, it was kind of the renaissance. Like there was so much unknown and so little that we were pretty confident on. And I feel at some point, and again, I'm not very well connected in hobbies, but I think that there's more of a mentality that everyone kind of thinks they're an expert and wants to, to answer a question right away or say something definitive. But I, I don't know everything. I mean, I still kill plants sometimes and I get really bummed out by it. But, you know, sometimes something happens. But, I, you know, I try to take that, reflect and then fix whatever was, you know, done or think what I'm not happy with with what I'm doing and try to improve it. Like, you know, if anyone ever tries to tell me that my terrariums look natural, I say, I don't think they're natural at all. I think they're completely exaggerated and kind of stylized versions of nature. And if someone tells me I'm an expert, I was like, no, I don't really like I I'm a lot better than I used to be. But there's not a month that goes by that I just sit back and do nothing. I always am trying to think what's going on and what I can improve and trying to scheme for the next thing I do to see if I can do something better or improve a technique. So, you know, I'm 100% in favor of people reconnecting with nature, having a personal connection and caring about them. I just think it would be really valuable if we could kind of close the circles again and have them care about these same organisms in the wild, 
care about the people that are trying to conserve them, care about the people that are maybe doing research on them. And, you know, just kind of, we all keep an open mind and stay humble and stay curious. Because that, to me, I think is one of the most exciting things. So what do you think the main thing that you're trying to conserve? Like, what is the thing that is destroying these animals and these habitats? Do you think it's mostly habitat loss or is it just bulk buying from the consumers? Or what do you think the problem is? I think anyone would have a difficult time saying habitat loss and fragmentation isn't the biggest driver. But sometimes we don't have direct control over that. So what we can do is we can, you know, conserve, we can push agencies to conserve governments and, you know, other agencies to conserve. But as far as, you know, hobbyists, they have control over some things. And that's, you know, the direct supporting of, you know, sustainable ethical animals versus smuggled animals versus, you know, gray market. So the the largest risks is something that maybe we have a difficult time controlling or doing anything directly ourselves, but we should certainly try and we should certainly strongly support the people that are trying to do that. But what you can do is, you know, money talks. So I think we need to just kind of keep in mind all the different levels of what we can do, you know, not buying an animal that's the descendant of a smuggled animal. That's one huge step that you can do. And it takes very little effort on your, on your part, maybe, or plants as well, you know, anything like that. You know, the aeroid market right now, I'm constantly hearing about a lot of smuggling and things going on. And that's hugely concerning, too. You know, the houseplant markets are shockingly large these days. So, you know, just making sure you do the right thing, where putting your, you know, your money where your interests are. Make sure that your money is going towards the people that are going to be doing the right thing. You know, maybe even if you're buying a really expensive plant or an animal. You know, ask those people, hey, do you think you'd be willing to like donate some of that money towards a conservation group? Maybe they say no. Yeah, so be it. Like, but maybe they say, yeah, you know what? I'll give like 20 or 30 percent. Like, you know, that plant grew like, you know, I can recouping my money in my original investment or, you know, the original money I spent. I don't I don't think thinking of plants or animals as investments is a really healthy way of thinking. But, you know, things like that or just saying, you know, maybe I'll wait and buy that next thing and let me just you know, toss some money to this group or this conservation agency or whomever, or, you know, I think there's just, there's just more that we can do. And it's difficult because inherently, I think these hobbies are kind of, you know, they're personal things for our personal pleasure. And because of that, they can become, you know, kind of a selfish thing. So, you know, maybe remembering, closing that circle again, remembering that these things occur in nature and, you know, they can use some help too. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed having you here, and it was a really eye-opening episode, I think, and I think a lot of people will find this very interesting. My pleasure. It was 100% what I didn't think we would talk about, so I'm happy to, you know, I, I think one thing just if I can end with is mm -hmm. I'm not trying to have any kind of holier-than-thou mentality or be condescending, and I hope it doesn't come across as any kind of condescension. I think it's just, I think of these things in living here and in coming from kind of a, a hobbyist culture, I think it's just sometimes a friendly reminder or a poke in the right direction can help. So I hope this doesn't come across as negative condescending or, you know, kind of trying to belittle people into doing something. I think if you can understand that where I'm coming from is I, I am a scientist because I had, you know, plants and animals as a kid. And now I live in a place where I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And I think it's just important to kind of just be a bit more transparent and pull some of these things out of the kind of the dark regions. You know, there's a population that I have a grant to go study and I can't even study them because they've just been so heavily smuggled in the past year. And it's like, I can't tell you how awful that is to know there's this amazing population that you were really interested in studying and you go back to start setting things up and I can't find enough animals to study that population. And I, I see pictures online of that population in people's terrariums that some are sustainable and legal and the other ones aren't. So, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of good that can come from, from husbandry and from people having plants and animals around. And I just really want to continue to see that good. Um, so yeah, enjoy your plants and your animals. And thank you for letting me talk about these things. I thought we would talk about giant terrariums and technology and, you know, this and that. But honestly, these are the things that to me, you know, I don't talk about as much as I probably should. And I, I really hope that maybe it resonates with one or two people and, you know, maybe they want to be more connected with conservation groups or support ethical biocommerce and, and, you know, have their money do some talking. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. I want to give a big thanks to Justin for coming on the show today. I learned a lot, and I know that a lot of my audience will also learn a lot. So I just wanted to say thank you. And next time on Nature's Wonders, there will be an episode all about Aquachar from Brian Covey. So please stay tuned for that. And as this music closes out, I would just like to say thank you for everyone who listened to the end. And I will be now posting on Wednesdays and Fridays. There will not be a random upload schedule anymore. So stay tuned to Aquachar on Friday. Thank you.